is at its best set on relationship. And so if I've got my hope on bragging rights, what I'm hoping for is respect. Isn't that crazy? I'm hoping for a little respect from the watching world, from commentators on media who I don't really know and I don't really care about other than whether or not they talk about something good about these teams that I support. I, I, it's about respect, which is really about glory. Isn't respect about glory? If there was not a th- such a thing as glory, there would be no score charts whatsoever. There would be no scoreboards. There would be no grades if it wasn't for this thing called glory. And so, painful it is to admit this, usually a lot of this is about self-glory. I'm going to say that after UNC just beat them bad. I'm going to admit it is about self-glory. All right, so I'm a little bit of laughter, but a little bit of crying involved in this. All right, of like, really? That's what this is about. So, with that... This is where my mind's at this past weekend, and then we're talking about hope. I'm thinking, well, I hope we win. I hope we, I hope we have a great season. I hope we win the Super Bowl. But, but what is real hope? And if it's really tied around glory, really tied about relationships, then what does that mean? And so let's go to the scripture here. And I want to just talk about hope as given to us in Colossians chapter 1, uh, because this is a letter that Paul writes to a, a group of people he really never knew. Uh, he wrote this from prison. You remember we looked at this in, in Acts where we left off? He was in Rome. In Rome, he writes a series of letters. They're called the pastoral letters. Colossians is one of them. And he writes it to this community uh, called Colossae, uh, a town he never visited, but one of those that he poured his life into did go and help start this church. And so uh, he hears news about this church and what's going on, some good things and some bad things. And so he's encouraging the good and discouraging the bad by lifting up Christ. And, and so if you're reading Colossians chapter 1, we're going to just pick out a, p- a few of these passages that speak to this issue of hope, how he identifies it in this church, uh, and then uh, what he has to say about this thing of hope, uh, really about Christ. And so if you'll stand as we read together, we're going to read with verse, beginning with verse 3. Um, read through verse 6, and then we're going to skip down to verse 21. Read some passages there. Uh, so he's heard about their faith. He's encouraged by them, thanks God for them. He's praying for them. Uh, and so uh, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. All right, now if you go down to verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
And then verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You may be seated. So Paul has heard some very good things about these Christians in Colossae. And so he says, you know, I thank God when I remember you. Why, why does he thank God? Well, he tells us right there uh, in verse 4 and 5. And I want you to notice the relationship of these things. I, since I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, I thank God. Since I've heard of that faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Now notice this transition word. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope laid up for you. So he says, faith, hope, and love. I thank God, because I've heard about these things. You have faith in Christ Jesus. You have love for all the saints. But what is the relationship between faith, love, and hope? He says it right here when he says that what births, or what, uh, is, the, what is the root of, of love for all the saints, he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And so what you need to understand is that hope is connected to relationship. In fact, what I would present to you, these, these three lessons about hope, and the first one comes right here in this transition, that love for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, that hope empowers love for others. Hope empowers love for others. Now, it is greatly determined by the object of your hope. In fact, I have found that if your object of hope is in something other than a relationship with God, that it instead fuels hostility. Right, NC State fans? I, I think we just experienced that a little bit. Of, man, you know, if, if I've, I've got this desire to, to see these games win and, and, and to see this team be exalted and glorious and everyone give their praises, and, and instead of it being a, a springboard of love for all the saints, it becomes something other than that, a point of division. Uh, and so hope empowers love for others. What kind of hope specifically? Well, hope that's laid up for you in heaven. That type of hope laid up for you in heaven. Where do you go to get that? What exactly does that look like? Uh, well, we're going to move fairly fast on this. What, what is heavenly hope? Just understand, a heavenly hope empowers love for others. Now, let me just say this. If you're loving someone, that means you're sacrificing to put their needs first. Okay? If you're loving someone, you're sacrificing to put their needs first. So how is it that you can sacrifice? You can sacrifice because your hope is not based in your resources. Your hope is not based in your bank account. Your hope is not based in the fact of how much time you have because you have a hope laid up in heaven that no one can steal that time. All right, so this is part of how it frees you up to love others in that uh, that no one's taken from you. Uh, when you're giving something to someone else to meet their needs, it's okay. Your hope is not based in how big your bank account was, or the clothing, or your time, or any of the other things. And so that's part of how hope empowers love for others. But notice he keeps on going, hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of the truth, 
the gospel. All right. So when we read this, not only do we see lesson number one, that hope empowers love for others, but hope is in fact the essence of the gospel. Hope is the essence of the gospel. He says this, this hope that you've got, it, it, it's what you've heard before. He equates it with the word of truth. He equates it with the gospel. The gospel is hope. The word of truth is hope, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. So I don't know what you think of when you hear the word gospel. Well, when Paul hears the word gospel, he's saying it is God giving hope to you. God giving hope to you. To you, so that the great delight is not necessarily when a team wins a game. But there's something else going on here that is between you and God. Uh, it is the great need for survival. In fact, Louis Zapparini, he is the one of which the, the movie and the book Unbroken was written about. Uh, his life story died not too long ago. I was reading a part of his, his, one of his books that he wrote. And he talks about how hope is the critical need for survival. He talks about uh, he spent 47 days uh, floating adrift at sea, only to be captured by the Japanese army and there interred into the prison camps where he was uh, tortured uh, by a particular guard, uh, mercilessly uh, put in interrogation rooms. And and he was just talking about that that, that time of life. He said the thing that made the difference was when guys talked about hope. He said, you know, the guys that said, you know, in three months' time, the war is going to be over. doesn't really matter if it happened or not. The fact that they just believed it was the difference between the guys who survived and the guys who didn't in prison camps. He said there was one friend that he had that was always the pessimist. In other words, he didn't want to believe in false optimism and and didn't really matter what the talk was he just had this mentality of it's not going to happen we're never getting out of here and so he reverted into the shell of a person where all he would do was just stare on the ground and would never talk with anybody somehow the war ended and this guy did survive Louis Zapparini said, you know, it was some time after that we got together. Uh, the, the army sent us down to Florida for some, some curing, some treatment, some relaxation. Uh, and there, they're in this camp or in this uh, resort-type setting. And he sees some of the guys uh, that he was with in the prison camps. And he says, and this guy was there. And here we are in this beautiful scene in Florida. We're no longer in a prison camp. We're not tortured. We're, we're fed. And all this guy could do was just stare at the ground and didn't talk he said this guy physically survived but spiritually mentally emotionally he died long before he said the difference was hope do you understand what god knows we need is hope that there's going to be a different outcome than what is now what is it when people go through hard times and adversities, and challenges, and they wish they could escape, what is it that every Christian tends to tell them? Well, you've heard this, so there's a purpose behind everything. You've heard that, right? Well, there's, there's, there's something that's going to happen. God's going to do something. There's a purpose in all of these things. I remember meeting a guy this past summer. Uh, we were working, uh, he was an intern, actually, at the 
uh, the mission uh, site we were at, and we were, had long discussions in the night one night. And when it was all said and done, he said, you know, I don't really believe that everything has a purpose. I don't believe that God is working through all these things. And he, it was birthed out of the experience with uh, a young lady, a friend of his that had cancer. And watch how she went through whatever she did. And she said, you know, I don't believe that God did that. God used that. I, I just don't believe that. And you'll come across people like that. Let me just bring some scripture to mind. Where does it say in scripture that everything works together? That God has a purpose for everything. So a lot of you are thinking Romans 8, chapter 28, right? So let's go there for just a second, because this is tied very closely uh, with this idea of hope. Romans chapter 8. Verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Okay? So we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There you have it. There's the promise. But do you notice any qualifications in that promise? Who does God work all things together for good? Those who love God and called according to his purpose. Do you know what's implied in that? What happens if you don't love God? You're not called according to his purpose. All things do not work together for good. So let's go back a few verses to Romans 8, verse 18. Let's talk about this for just a second. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is a glorious verse. Okay? That's glorious. Mark it. Memorize it. The bad junk you go through. Nothing. Nothing in comparison to what God's going to do. So, as bad as it is, is a gauge of the extreme of how good it's going to be. Um, so this past Monday, I think it was Monday, I woke up, looked online, and a friend of mine, a person I've known for the last number of years, she's gone to India. Uh, last, I don't know, three or four times I've gone. She's always been there. Um, 46, has a one-year-old. She died. Cancer. Um, so I'm seeing Paul, her husband, and the future and just my response to that is cancer stinks. Um, another pastor friend, pa you know, Michael Wilkes, his beautiful bride, thirty-six year old, got five kids, and she's working through cancer, stage four, inoperable. You got Dr. Mike Watson, like last Sunday. So like, yeah, cancer stinks, and that's just a tip of stuff. And all the things that are happening, 
nothing compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All right? So that's the future in front of some. All right? Some. But then he goes on and explains, For the creation waits with eager longings for the revealings of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. All right, now what's he talking about? He's talking about what uh, Kaylee read to us this morning of Genesis, of the effect of sin, that when sin came in, it fundamentally messed up God's creation, including creation itself. So what does that mean? He gives the consequences to Adam. He says, you will work in futility. You will work in vain. There is going to be this aspect of nature working against you. You know what that introduced? It introduced this principle that there are some evil things that happen that have no redeeming good that happens in creation. That's the world your children are born in. It's the world where you live in. Disaster happens. People die without any seeming good consequence. The consequence of sin is futility. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Why? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The creation itself is in this futility cycle, waiting God redeeming humans for his purposes to be made into something. And all of nature is just waiting, groaning. So I think what yesterday was the anniversary of the tornado that came in North Raleigh. Some of you remember that night, I think it was 1989, uh, wiped out Kmart and some of this area went back behind my side. And tornadoes come, hurricanes come, and it's just the groanings of nature waiting for this redemption of mankind where God makes us into something different. All right? You understand what I'm saying here? And this is what scriptures bring out. This is, they're groaning for this. For we know that all of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we ourselves, we groan when we see um, Colorado, someone kill people. And I'm just afraid of what's going to be revealed with that deal. Uh, what the motivation was with that, of killing uh, Planned Parenthood. Um, and one of which is a security guard who's a police, uh, who was a, a pastor. Guarding against, guarding a facility of which things happen there that he is fundamentally against. Um, fascinating. But nonetheless, there's these killings in Paris and all these other things. This is part of nature itself, our own selves groaning against us, longing for this, for this redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Okay? For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen 
is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so this is the preceding passage that then goes into Romans 8.28 and says, Now, there are a select few. There are those who in this world are loved by God and love God and God's working in their life. They've seen the work of Jesus Christ. They're responding to Jesus Christ. So God is making a different people, a kingdom of God. He's making a church community that is to be a foreshadowing of things to come and that when you see these people and they believe in a God that is working in their life that bad things happen cancer comes their wife of uh, the mother of five kids and they believe beyond a shadow of doubt God is working through this all right that type of mindset is a huge difference in a world that has little hope are they hoping football games? Are they hoping their job? Are they hoping to get a girlfriend? They hope to get a boyfriend. This is different. That allows believers to live in a broken world, acknowledge the broken world, and says, I'll be different in this. I will love in this. I will pray for the killer as I'll pray for those families that have been killed. It's just a, a mindset that allows us, frees us to love other people. And so hope is the essence of the gospel. But we need to speak a little bit more into this. How, how does this work? Well, go down to verse 21. He's talking about uh, Colossians, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, back to that, verse 21. He talks about Christ, the preeminence of Christ. We looked at this uh, at Christmas time before, uh, of verses 15 uh, all the way through 20 specifically, of who Christ is. But then, verse 21, And you, who once were alienated in hostile mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you wholly blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 21, 22 gives us the definition of what this gospel hope is. What does this look like? He's now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you wholly blameless and above reproach before him. If you indeed continue in the faith, stable hope, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, all right? Not shifting from this belief that you see in verse 21 and 22, all right? So when we read verse 21 and 22, it says, You who once were alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death. What is this, what is this third lesson about hope? If hope uh, is, empowers love for others, if hope is the essence of the gospel, if we look carefully at the gospel, we see that hope springs from a supreme relationship, all right? The gospel is about a supreme relationship with a supreme being, all right? So hope must be fundamentally tied to relationship. We know this in our life. Uh, I remember it was 20 years ago, um, 21 years ago, uh, and I had this conversation with this graduating senior from college, and I'd known her over the last two years, and I'd sensed in my heart, after observing her, this was the one, this was the one, 
And so in that conversation, I'd kind of made this personal commitment and had shared this with her sometime previously that I'm not going to say I love you. I'm not going to say I love you until I'm really ready to back that up with a lifetime commitment. It's one thing to say I love you like a, like a dad to a daughter, you know, but it's another thing to say I love you for a 19-year-old to a 20-year-old or something like that, opposite sex. That's totally different because when you say I love you then, it's this, this future thing, right? And so I kind of made this commitment, and I sensed in my heart, and I, we went out to the park. Uh, we were there, and I said it. I said, Julie, I love you. You're the one. She's going to move. <laughs> move away for two years. I'm going to stay there. Um, but there was this sense of release in my life. I remember going back, it was a Sunday, we were coming back on a, on a Sunday night, and we were having services there, and uh, we were just singing, and I was just thinking through, and I remember this thought of, you know, I, mom and dad told me that they'd been praying for my future mate since the day I've been born, and I thought, there she is. And it's just this realization, there it is. This future that was in front of us that brought this emotion of just exhilaration and excitement of what will be. All right, hope. Hope that carried us through the next two years, long disrelationships and all that kind of stuff, and um, to eventual a marriage date. And it happens. And then, you know, when the ceremony happens, y'all know, those married, that's it? <laughs> that was a lot of work. That's a lot of time. And just like that, we're married, <laughs> what? You know, um, it just seemed kind of short. <laughs> Simple, easy, quick. Um, but, you know, 18 years later, it makes a little difference, uh, that 30-minute that service. Uh, but that's not what sets your heart for eternity. That's not what sets your heart even for your life. But it's closely tied in that it's with a relationship. But somewhere along the way, for those of you who got married, you realize, you know, my hope really can't be in a marriage. My hope can't be in someone else. That's not what my heart is looking for. And the, and the sad reality of when you're young is that you live under this delusion that maybe it is. Scripture, if you would believe it, is saying it's not. It's tied to a supreme relationship. And that all the marriages, and even father, mother, daughter, son, are shadows that point to a more supreme relationship. And so I hope that last is going to be connected to this relationship. So notice the, the progression of verse 21. It started off with saying, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So first there's this inner reversal of attitude. Basically, we didn't have any use for God. We were alienated. We did not take him into reckoning. He wasn't a factor in our thoughts. We did not consider him important. We started and ended each day without the thought of God. We went about our own plans. We lived for ourselves. And we did what we felt like doing with not giving a thought to him. Or if we did think of him, regarded him as some remote being on the horizon of our life. But... We never expected anything from him. Because we just simply cut him out of our thinking. 
even though he was the one that sustained every breath we took. We were alienated. And so consequently, hostile. We avoided him. The fact that you're here right now, if you're here and you're in this state, you, have, you may have mastered a way to be here but not listen. Um, you've perfected that. Or you're really feeling kind of, man, how does he know this stuff? How does he talking to me? I'm feeling uncomfortable. Or perhaps you think of God as someone who will interfere with your plans. Some kind of cosmic killjoy. Make our life uneventful and boring. Unhappy. We're not open to him in any degree whatsoever. Enemies of God. Therefore, express that in our evil behavior. You see this? We were once alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds. Do you remember that? Do you remember what this is like? Or maybe it's very fresh in your mind. Notice verse 22, but he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Something happened in our inner attitude. Something happened, set aside the estrangement that we felt with God. Something came to set aside the brokenness and hurt. If we would come to him in faith, he would deliver. We believed it, so we came. Changed the way we thought. And we can no longer see God as an enemy or as our judge, but became our father. God did that through Christmas, through coming and dying for us. Why? What is this hope that we have? What do we hope will happen in heaven? Verse 22, he's done this in order to present you holy before him. <laughs> How many you know you're messed up? I hope you do. If you don't know that, let me tell you, you're messed up, all right? It's just a matter of realizing how bad we were messed up. But God is working to present you holy before him. It's just one thing to be holy before you if you only see me on Sunday. It's honestly not too hard to see and present myself as holy before you if it's just one day a week. Uh, it's been said that dating is presenting a facade of holiness. <laughs> and then you get married. <laughs> All right. So the thing is, though, this is holy not before someone you see every once in a while. This is holy before God. This is the one who knows your thoughts. And he is saying, I'm working to present you right before the God who knows the secret of your hearts. The heart secrets. He knows these things, the things you're ashamed of. He is working these. This is a God who is reconciling his body of flesh by his death in order to present you blameless before God. Blameless before God. Yet this is the one that we pretended like didn't exist and really was ir irrelevant in our life, though we lived by his will and his word. But God is working in such a way that though we treated him and disregarded him as not the center of the universe, though this world is made for his glory, yet he is working in a way that we can be without blame before God. And if God can't blame you, who's going to judge you? 
That's the idea where it says, if God is for you, who can be against you in Romans chapter 8? That's hope. And above reproach before God. Husbands, how, many of, how much would you pay if you could somehow magically in your wife's eyes be viewed as blameless? <laughs> All right. Uh, you got real, didn't it? Wow, I could be blameless before her. What about God? God does that. He's doing that. And that's our hope. It comes out of this supreme relationship. It springs from this. And indeed, if you continue the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. How do we know that God has done this internal work within our heart? All right? Changing us from the inside out, from being hostile and alienated in our minds and, and, and evil, doing evil deeds. How do we know that God is doing this inward change? We know it happens because there is a desire, a continuation to not waver, to hold on for, to the hope of the gospel. When I was hearing this man talk, this, this uh, intern, sharing with me how he doesn't believe that God is working all things to good, there was a part of me that just wanted to cry for him. How can I go on if I don't believe that God is working in the midst of bad stuff for good? Maybe we need to define what good is. (laughs) What is good, by the way? Is it meaning that my life is going to be more comfortable? That I can have more happiness in my life? Um, Or that my health? For my friend Michael, is it good? Is it going to be that Melissa no longer has cancer? If that's the case, how would I explain it to Paul, who lost his wife Monday to cancer? Good has to be refined some other way than that. Let me go back to Romans 8, if you will. If you were reading in verse 28, this verse, all things work together for good. And it really helps to read the next verse. So he talks a little bit more about that. You're called according to his purpose. So what's his purpose? This explanation for, right? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is God's purpose according to this passage? If you note it, what is God working to do? Verse 29, as it relates to you, he's working to conform you to the image of his son. When God created creation, he said it was good. When he created man with woman, he said this is good. What was good about it? They were made in his what? His image. 
sin marred it. Christ comes to fix it, to change us, and he is working through broken world to define and remake good. Good looks like you, like Christ. And when this world sees Christ, glory is given. And creation itself applauds. It's no longer futile. Cancer now has a purpose. It's making something beautiful. It's, I, there's Christ. I, I see Christ. That is the creator of this world. It is reflected. Now glory, proper glory is given. And the scorecards and the scoreboards and everything else saying Christ-like, Christ-like, Christ-like. That is the measurement of the glory of God now. And so here's the thing. When we go through bad stuff, when we go through humbling things, when we go through punishment, do us. We pay the stupid tax for being stupid. You get Christ. You get Christ. And the question is, is that what you want? Is that what you want? If that's what you want, it becomes a beautiful thing. But if your heart is set on something else, then it's futile. It's wasted. And I have no consolation to give you. Because when it's all said and done, if it's not the glory given to Christ, it's glory given to yourself. Why do I want the Carolina Panthers to win? Mm. That's about my glory. Which is why no Christian should be depressed (laughs) if any football team loses. All right? Because it's not about that. Why do people have Christmas depression? They're hoping in something. And it didn't happen. And they get depressed. A lot of times we're practicing and living in such a way that our own minds reveal to us. Through disappointments and depression and other ways. We're doing things. We're living for our own glory in some way, and we're killing our brains and bodies to do it. So, this is about the coming. Hope and the coming, right? The first candle. Jesus came. It was prophesied. It was, it was, and Jesus did come as was prophesied. We lit a candle to remind us of that, but it's also to let us know this is not the final coming. There's more to be had. Creation still is working in a very futile way. And we have a hope that is still unseen, according to Romans chapter 8. And we want it to be seen. Someday hope dies. And it dies when it's seen. When I'm in heaven, I don't live by hope anymore. When the kingdom comes, I don't live by hope anymore. I live in the reality. I live in what is in front of me. And so let me just share some scriptures that speak to that. Uh, First of all, the kingdom coming. It's beginning when the Spirit of Christ comes in my life. What's the verse 27 say, Colossians 1? To them God chose to make known how great among Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When I have any given day and I realize the truth, the Spirit of God is in my life. And I believe it, I trust in it, and I'm going to yield to what the Spirit of God is doing in my life. It is a glorious moment. 
is glory for eternity. It is what God has been working. It's why there's a candle lit here, so that Christ can be in me, the hope of glory. But it's not yet fully realized. And every day I surrender the Spirit of Christ is the kingdom of God being realized in my life. The king reigns over my heart as I surrender the Spirit of Christ. But let me share with you 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. What love. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So when I think about Christ has come, there is also many scriptures that talk about Christ will come. There's more to be seen. And what will it be like? It's not clear yet, but we do know that when we see him, we will be like him because God is working all things toward this one purpose of us being like him and God getting greater glory through his children looking like him. And that's my hope. There's a hope one day my selfishness will not be the pervasive quality within me. There will be a hope that one day greed is not going to dictate financial choices and love and unloving people actions. There's a hope that my heart will be set on the one pure thing in relationship with Jesus Christ. And as my heart's set on that one pure relationship with Jesus Christ, I become more like Him. And I have that hope. So why do I want to set my mind on things that betray that? Anyone who has this hope and then purifies himself just as he is pure, why would I want to betray that? Why would I want to fill my mind with books that take my thoughts elsewhere? Why do I want to set it on, on things that stir my emotions in something other than Jesus Christ? That's why I shouldn't be too caught up in football. We say this jokingly, but there's some real truth to this. In our neck of the woods, in ACC country, all right? We don't set it on these things. We don't get our mind wrapped around these things that are shallow. I don't even set it on people. I can love someone best when I don't set my heart and mind emotions and identity on them. It took me a little while to figure that out in marriage. I can love him better, love her better, when she's not my identity. Or my work's not my identity. My car. <laughs> God has a way of correcting that. <laughs> All these things are working together to get my hope set on the one thing that matters. Because someday it'll happen to me like it happened to Mike Wilkes and Melissa, like it happened to Paul Minton, Christine, like it happened to Dr. Mike Watson, like it's happening to some of you. It doesn't have to be cancer. It can be an instant car accident. 
It could be some disability thing. It could be something emotionally wrong with me. It could be something uh, in my own brain of a weakness. It is just one heartbeat away, isn't it? The frailty of life. Do you have a hope that's greater than a car accident? Do you have a hope that's greater than than a human relationship? Do you have a hope that's greater than cancer? So that... Paul Mitten, whose wife died Monday, can say, I really miss my wife. There's still something for me to live for. You could be there with a doctor who says you've got 24 hours. And in that moment, as a child of God, you've got something to live for. thing about death is it totally weakens all the false hopes and it makes it real everybody needs to go to a funeral some of you don't like going to funerals because it's sad there's wisdom there go there learn from the house of wisdom because you too will die and will you have life Starts with what Colossians says right here. Jesus says, come. I'm reconciling the greatest relationship that can ever be. I'm doing it for you. Will you come, humble yourself, and let me just be your Savior. Let me forgive you. Forget about forgiving yourself because yourself doesn't really matter anyway. Whether you forgive yourself or not. The only thing that matters God forgive you. And let the Spirit of Christ come in and light up your life. Let's pray.